Our text for today is found in Galatians 3.15. Galatians 3.15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. What is national covenanting? Is it an ordinance for only the nation of Israel? Or is it also an ordinance for all Christian nations as well? Is the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643 a national covenant that binds only England, Ireland, and Scotland? Or does it also extend to the former and present dominions of Great Britain, including the United States and Canada? I had mentioned a few weeks ago that I intended to address this subject in detail. Well, that time uh, has arrived. And so rather than proceeding uh, verse by verse uh, through uh, Galatians where we left off, I've decided to take up this particular topic at this time. I'd like to, over a period of time, however long it takes us, to work through this subject in short, bite-sized pieces, a little bit at a time, building upon a foundation, precept upon precept, line upon line, and seeking to establish the biblical view, a biblical defense of national covenanting. I have three goals in mind in doing so. First, I would seek to defend the doctrine and practice of national covenanting from Scripture as an ordinance for all Christian nations. In fact, I would seek to, under this first goal, make that my my primary objective to show at every point where the principles of Scripture apply to national covenanting, where they apply to the Solemn League and Covenant, where they apply to the United States, to Canada, and other covenanted nations, using God's Word as, again, our primary, as our infallible standard. That's not to say that uh, I won't also bring in other historical sources, but I do want to lay the foundation at every step along the way uh, in the Word of God so that we have a biblical basis for our views, so that we can, each one, go to the Word of God and say, I believe this because this is what God's Word teaches. A second goal, I would seek to demonstrate that the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643 is a scriptural national covenant. And third, I would seek to prove that the Solemn League and Covenant binds presently not only <clears throat> the nations of England, Ireland, and Scotland, but also binds the former and present dominions of Great Britain, including the United States and Canada. Through this whole study of a completely neglected subject in Presbyterian churches today, I would pray that we would all be awakened to our gross sin of covenant-breaking, against the Lord our God as a nation, and to our desperate need of Jesus Christ, who alone can remove this sin and all other sins from the moral person of this nation. <clears throat> it's certainly not a subject that I myself have in sermons addressed as fully as I would like to. There have been parts of sermons, application in sermons that I have addressed this subject. 
a number of years ago, uh, there, there were some lectures that were given, but I would like to give a much, much more firm biblical exegetical basis to the views that we profess to espouse with regard to national covenanting and in defense of the Solemn League and Covenant as to its descending obligation to us here in the United States and Canada. Let me also add that if you have questions that you would like to submit to me by email so that I can put them into a file and keep them ever before me uh, that relate to this subject, uh, I encourage you to please send those questions to me and I will seek to cover them in the course of this series. may not get to them immediately, uh, but I will, by God's grace, get to them. And uh, many of them may already be in my list of things to cover, list of questions or objections to cover, but it won't hurt if you uh, submit them anyway. So I encourage you to do that. Some of the, some of what I will present may at times uh, seem more uh, like a lecture uh, than in sermonic, hortatory format. Um, in covering this subject, it's probably going to be the case to some extent. I will always try to have some exhortation and application for us all, but uh, it still may come across in more of a lecture format. And it won't be perhaps in the same vein as we are accustomed to hearing in sermons by way of working verse by verse by verse consecutively through a chapter. Uh, but this will be, as you might imagine, uh, more of a topical type of presentation and going to various places in the scripture to seek to establish the principles, the biblical principles that need to be established. With those uh, preliminary remarks uh, in place, looking now at Galatians 3.15, looking at Paul's argument in Galatians 3.15, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth, or addeth thereto. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul seeks to demonstrate that the gracious covenant God made with Abraham, wherein God promised him and his posterity salvation through Christ, that that covenant was firm and secure, not on the basis of one's obedience to the law. In other words, the covenant wasn't going to simply pass away because man was unfaithful to that covenant. But was rather firmly built upon the basis of God's promise through Christ the mediator. Paul uses an argument from the lesser to the greater in Galatians 3.15 to add weight to the inviolable, perpetual nature of God's covenant of grace, which extends from Adam, after the fall, even to the end of the world. This Paul does by comparing God's covenant of grace a covenant between God and men with that of a mere human covenant between men and men. As Calvin states in this verse, quote, human contracts are admitted on all hands to be binding. How much more what God has established. <clears throat> If, for example, you signed a commercial covenant or contract with a contractor to build you a home for so much money, 
And if he did not keep his word in completing your home, would you not view <clears throat> that as a violation of a binding covenant into which you both had entered? If even such covenants made with fellow men are binding, how much more binding are covenants wherein God is one party and man, either individually or collectively, is the other party? When there is a violation or a breach of covenant, if the covenant immediately ended at that particular point, there would be no way to pursue the consequences of one who breaks that covenant. It's the very fact that that covenant is binding and continues that we can go to the contractor and say, but you covenanted, or to the law and say, this was the covenant that was made. And this is the violation that has occurred. Paul in Galatians 3.15 is specifically seeking to demonstrate the perpetual and inviolable nature of the covenant of grace between God as one party and Abraham and his posterity as the other party. Although Abraham and his posterity will fail to keep the covenant with God as they ought, God will not fail to keep it in saving and redeeming his people from their sin. The unfaithfulness of man in keeping God's good and holy commandments will not nullify the covenant, for God will see the covenant realized in the lives of his people in spite of their unfaithfulness. Well, similarly, similarly it is true of all national covenants wherein a nation formally engages itself to be God's people. Those national covenants are likewise perpetual whenever the posterity is included, as we shall see shortly. For in a national covenant, God is one party, and the people collectively as a moral person are the other party. Simply because people violate a covenant made with him does not end the covenant obligation. Otherwise, every covenant would simply end and there would be no further obligation to keep it or consequences in violating it when one party sins against the covenant. The first main point today uh, is the question, what is a national covenant? <clears throat> A national covenant is an ordinance of God wherein a nation through its people and through its official representatives formally engages itself and all those that are represented therein to be God's people in loving obedience to his commandments. I'm going to work through that again, breaking it up and providing, again, scriptural basis for this definition. First of all, then, a national covenant is an ordinance of God. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 25, at the end of the life of Joshua, Joshua enters into a covenant with the people of Israel before he leaves the scene, before he is taken from this earth to bind them to covenantal faithfulness, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And he says, and it says concerning this covenant that Joshua made with the people to which God to whom it was uh, sworn uh, unto God. It says in verse 24, And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, 
and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And so this was an ordinance of God. He set before them an ordinance of God in establishing this covenant for the people of Israel. And so, national covenant is not something that's devised by man. National covenant is something, not simply a good idea that is proposed by man. It is an ordinance of God. A national covenant, furthermore, is an ordinance of God wherein a nation through its people and official, official representatives are formally engaged. Through its people and official representatives are formally engaged. Notice in Second Kings chapter 11, verse 17. There we find that the official representative of the people namely the king stood together in this covenant unto God and Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. You see, the Lord calls calls rulers of the people, he calls them to be his representatives to the people. Those where there is, is a lawful government in place, a civil government in place, they are the official representatives of the people. In fact, they are called gods in the Psalms. Because they represent God. In Romans 13, they are called the minister of God to thee for good. To exercise God's wrath against those who disobey. And so they are God's ministers. But they also are God's ministers in carrying out God's will. And they are also representatives of the people. And when the representatives of the people do swear a covenant before God and unto God on behalf of themselves and the people, that does indeed bind the nation, as we shall see further. In Nehemiah 9, verse 38, there likewise we find... The same truth proposed and, and uh, established when it says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. Then later on in chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, it continues, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. And so, again, a nation may in fact be bound by the official representatives of that nation, the king, the president, the parliament, the Congress, as they enter into a covenant on behalf of themselves as well as on behalf of the nation as a moral person. 
continuing with the definition. A national covenant is an ordinance of God wherein a nation through its people and official representatives formally engages itself and all those that are represented therein. All those that are represented therein. In other words, the point that, that is being made here is that, yes, all those who are represented therein may be those certainly who are living at the time, but also may be even those who are not living at the time because the moral person of that nation adds members to it, even as members fall away from it by way of death, may add members to it by way of those who are born into that nation or who emigrate to that nation. And so a nation may be bound not only at the time that the covenant is made, but continues to be bound in all succeeding generations as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 14 through 15, in the covenant renewal that we find here before God's people enter into the promised land, Deuteronomy 29, verses 14 and 15, we find these words. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. Who were those who were not there with them that day, but, rather, but, but obviously those who were yet to be born. Those who would be a part of that nation subsequently would also be brought into the same covenant that God had established with his people and which his people took upon themselves by saying, we will obey God's covenant and his laws. We will take God to be our God. And so again, just one more part of this definition that I would like to elaborate on. A national covenant is an ordinance of God wherein a nation, through its people and official representatives, formally engages itself and all those that are represented therein to be God's people in loving obedience to his commandments. In Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, <clears throat> There we read of a covenant that uh, is uh, spoken here with regard to King Asa. And we read concerning this covenant, beginning with verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and all their, with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. And so the, the goal in national covenanting is to formally engage oneself to be God's people in loving obedience 
to God and to his commandments. There was the covenant of grace wherein Christ perfectly fulfills all righteousness and purchases redemption for his people. And wherein the Spirit of God applies all of the benefits of redemption to this redeemed people is summarized for us by our Lord in these words found in 2 Corinthians 6.16. I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That particular verse speaks of the, the union and communion that God shares with his people with whom he enters into covenant. A covenantal union that they bear to the Lord their God. We note that on the part of God, he freely and graciously covenants to be the God of his people. Having freely loved and redeemed them, he promises to bless them. On the part of the people, on the other hand, they voluntarily covenant with God to be his people through faith in Jesus Christ. They promise to to obey him, having been freely loved and redeemed by Christ from sin and hell, they promise on behalf of themselves and their posterity to love and serve him all of their days in keeping his good and holy commandments. As we shall see, what is true of individuals is true also of families and nations as well, who likewise have a duty to collectively enter into covenant with God as God's people. You see, it is not simply an individual who enters into covenant with God, but we are bound to, as families, be covenanted families. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As church, we are to be bound by way of covenant that we are God's people. We are bound unto him by way of a covenant relationship. He is our God and we are his people. As a nation, likewise, we are bound to covenant with God to be his people. A Christian nation has that obligation bearing upon them not to be simply an independent group of people as individuals who are bound to God, but to come collectively and formally through their representatives and to say, we are God's people as a nation. Thus, covenanting is a divine ordinance grounded in and flowing from the grace which God has shown to his people through Jesus Christ and through his finished work of redemption. National covenanting is not the covenant of grace It is rather the fruit of the covenant of grace. Because God has in the covenant of grace shown us such mercy and love through Jesus Christ, our response is to covenant with him as individuals, as families, as churches, and as nations. Such incomprehensible love and grace shown to unworthy sinners, unworthy families, unworthy churches, unworthy nations must elicit from us an unfeigned love, sincere gratitude, and faithful obedience. One last note before moving on to the second main point. National, in not, national covenanting, it is not a covenant of works. 
which we place ourselves and our posterity under in establishing and renewing these national covenants with God. For the covenant of works declares in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. We do not establish or renew covenants in order to be justified before the infinitely holy tribunal of God, that is, to make ourselves acceptable to God on the basis of our works of righteousness, nor to escape eternal condemnation from the Lord our God, for it is not our works of righteousness that can ever deliver us from the condemning wrath of God, but rather only and always our Savior's works of righteousness alone that can satisfy the justice of an offended and holy God. And so our national covenanting is not a covenant of works. It flows from the covenant of grace. It presupposes the covenant of grace. The second main point <coughs> today is this. National covenanting is an ordinance for all Christian nations and not for Israel alone. There are many who would like to reserve and limit national covenanting to Israel alone as if national covenanting was distinctively for Israel. As if it was a part of either the ceremonial or the judicial law of Israel and has no moral equity that pertains to all nations. However, covenanting, dear ones, whether individual, familial, ecclesiastical, or national, is not a mere judicial law of Israel, but, dear ones, a moral law that is firmly embedded in the third commandment, where we read in Exodus 20, verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord shall not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. It is of moral equity. It is founded in the law of God. It is an ordinance as we have already seen in Joshua chapter 24. The third commandment, dear ones, speaks of a universal duty to swear faithfully to God in all covenants. This is not just an obligation. The third commandment is not just an obligation that Israel owes to God, but one that Gentiles owe to God as well. <coughs> this obligation has never been rescinded, and certainly Christ, in Matthew chapter 5, did not repeal the third commandment, as many may try to prove, where the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 33 and following says this. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of, of, of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. <coughs> What Jesus was addressing was an abuse, <clears throat> an abuse of swearing, of taking oaths. 
and seeking to excuse oneself by way of taking an oath on the basis of the gold on the altar rather than saying the altar itself. In other words, he says in Matthew 23 that some were saying, in effect, I swear by the gold on the altar. And then they thought that they were excused because they were not swearing by the altar itself. Or, I swear by the sacrifices. of the temple, but not by the temple, that they could excuse themselves. And it went on and on and on in various ways in which they sought to excuse themselves from the obligation of keeping the covenants that they made. And that is simply because they were abusing covenants and oaths and using them at every turn. And that's why Jesus says that let your yea be yea and your nay nay for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Most of the time because we speak the truth our words should be sufficient. It's only in exceptional cases where it is required for reasons that are of great import that we should take an oath or make a covenant before God. For the most heavy and weighty types of matters, not simply to use an oath in the course of our common ordinary speech. And this was what was being abused by the Pharisees and by those religious leaders at that time. Jesus is not saying that the third commandment no longer is binding. It no longer has any obligation. That's so far from the truth. <clears throat> because if that's the case, <clears throat> how could anyone be guilty of covenant breaking thereafter, after the words of Christ, if he had basically annulled, rescinded, repealed the third commandment so that it was no longer in force, how could anyone be guilty of breaking covenant? As we find in Romans 131, where covenant breaking is listed as a serious and grave sin. And in 2 Timothy 3.3, where truce breaking is listed as a grave and serious sin. How can you commit a sin for something that is no longer binding and obligatory? To keep. Since it is a lawful ordinance to covenant with God individually, for example, as we see in Psalm 76.11, notice the word of God here. <clears throat> Psalm 76.11 says, Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. <coughs> Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. And though that may be viewed <coughs> as something that pertains to individuals, it is likewise, dear ones, a lawful ordinance for a nation that is formed collectively of many individuals to vow and covenant unto the Lord. For we read in Isaiah chapter 19, and this I would submit to you, is not spoken with regard to Israel and national covenanting, but this is spoken of Gentile nations, as we have alluded in this main point too, that it's not merely Israel, but that Gentile nations likewise have national covenanting as an ordinance given unto them. In Isaiah 19, 
verses 18 through 21, we read, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. That's a covenant. They shall swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And he shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it. <clears throat> it goes on to say, uh, even beyond that, that in that day which I take to be that blessed time of Millennial gospel prosperity, when the Lord Jesus Christ will in his, his power subdue his enemies and reign over the nations of the world in visible glory and power, that that will be accomplished what is here spoken of will be accomplished at that time, but we notice uh, we note as well that it says in the same chapter, in verse 24, In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. And in verse 23, the previous verse, it says that, oh, I'm sorry, Verse 25, the following verse, Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Dear ones, the ordinance of national covenanting is here in Isaiah 19 called a vow unto God, which Gentile nations shall perform in the future during the millennium in the New Testament age. From where, I ask, does the obligation for a Christian nation to vow unto God and to perform that vow come? From where does that obligation come? I submit to you, this duty, the moral basis and foundation of that duty, which Gentile nations will perform, that are prophesied here to occur in Isaiah 19, the moral basis is the third commandment, which applies to all, not simply to Israel, but applies to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. For they are the moral commandments of God. They are the moral law of God. The third and final question for this Lord's Day, or the third and final point, a national covenant has a descending obligation that binds posterity. A national covenant has a descending obligation that binds posterity. The inclusion of posterity in a covenant, dear ones, is not a novel concept to those who are reformed. For the posterity of Adam was included in the covenant of works as we all sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And as the posterity of Christ were included in the covenant of grace, as we all shall live through his death and resurrection, 
in 1 Corinthians 15.22, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Likewise, dear ones, our children as posterity, our posterity, are included in the gracious covenant God makes with us as believing parents. Inasmuch as the promise is not only unto us who can believe, but to us and to our children, Peter says in Acts 2.38. And for that reason, because a promise is made unto them, we administer the sign and seal of baptism to them. And so posterity is included in the covenant made with parents. Posterity receive that blessed seal and sign because of the relationship, because of the covenant relationship that God has established with believing parents. <clears throat> the National Covenant of Israel Dear ones, included not only those who were present and able to swear to God, but as we have already seen in Deuteronomy 29, and uh, if you look at the fuller uh, passage, verses 10 through 15, you see that, again, the posterity, those who weren't present, were included in that covenant as well. So likewise, by way of the same moral principle of covenant, that moral pr principle of covenant succession is posterity in any national covenant included in that covenant. We who are Reformed and Presbyterian, as I said, this is not a foreign concept. It ought not to be a foreign concept to us. Even in covenants between men not between God and man, between men and man, or men and men, posterity may be and are included. For example, in Joshua chapter 9, there was a covenant that Israel entered into <coughs> with the Gibeonites. They were Canaanites and feared Israel, what Israel would do to them because Israel had crushed, destroyed various great nations within Canaan. And they, in order to, to not be destroyed, to be saved and preserved, pretended as if they had come, and, come from a far distant land. They put on rags, uh, clothing that looked like it was torn and worn and dirty and bare. And they, they had food that was uh, putrid, that was rotted, and, and as if they had been on the road and on a long, long journey. And they came, even with that kind of deception on their part, and said to Joshua and the rulers of Israel, Enter into a covenant with us that we may be preserved, that we may not be destroyed. Now, in this particular case, it does indicate that they did not consult with the Lord, the uh, Joshua and the leaders of Israel, but entered into that covenant with them in the name of the Lord, taking God's name upon them in doing so, and it says in Joshua 9, 15, just one moment here. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them and let them live and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. <coughs> now, that wasn't a, a covenant that was directly sworn to God, though it would appear that they had taken the name of the Lord 
upon them in keeping the covenant, but was rather a covenant between nations. Did God hold them responsible by way of a perpetual obligation, a descending obligation? Did there, were their posterity bound to uphold this covenant in succeeding generations, though they were not present at the time that this covenant was sworn? Well, as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21, God has brought upon Israel a famine, a very severe famine. For three years, year after year, a famine. And it says in verse 1, And David inquired of the Lord. In other words, David inquired and said, Lord, what is going on? Why has this famine continued? What is the cause? Is there sin on our part in some way that has brought this famine upon us? And the Lord answered, It is for Saul. And for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites who, from several hundred years earlier, perhaps four to five hundred years earlier, had sworn a covenant. God says, because Saul has slain these Gibeonites, whom Israel had covenanted to protect and to preserve, that my wrath, my judgment is upon Israel. And in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 21, And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn unto them, that is, all the way back into the t- days of, of Joshua. And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. So Saul had zeal to purify the people of Israel, but it was a zeal without knowledge because it was violating the covenant which God had made, or which the people had made before God with another nation. Descending obligation continues into the posterity. One other example, and there are many, but again, I will not continue to elaborate, but in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, David and Jonathan enter into a covenant, <coughs> one person to one person before God, swearing in the name of the Lord, And their seed, their posterity, is likewise bound. It says in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, forasmuch as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now, if there is a descending obligation, and there is, to even covenants made between men, how much more there is a descending obligation in covenants wherein God is one party, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, the God who is not confined to one geographical location upon the earth, the God who owns the entire earth, who created the earth and all the inhabitants therein, when a covenant is made with him, how much more the descending obligation would apply. For it continues, dear ones, as long as the posterity continues. God isn't going to cease to exist. He's not going to stop. As long as the 
the posterity continues, and there is a posterity to that covenant, then that covenant continues because God lives and will hold those who have made covenant with him. He will hold them to that covenant. That is why a covenant, a national covenant, that continues to bind posterity is called, in Jeremiah 50, verse 5, a perpetual covenant. A perpetual covenant. You know, even we in this nation, independent of of some self-evident recognition of, of the truth of God's word, but as a nation, we recognize that national treaties and covenants bind posterity, our posterity. When's the last time that you ever heard that a, a, that a treaty that was made previously had to be renewed with succeeding generations in order for it to be effective, in order for it to continue to the next generation. Is it not assumed that laws, that covenants, that treaties that are made by the nation continue to bind posterity until the nation, by way of its representatives, rescinds or repeals those treaties, those covenants, those laws? See, we operate that way all of the time. Can you imagine what a hassle and bookwork there would be to have to renew with every succeeding child or with every succeeding grandchild, with every succeeding person who is born, a covenant that the nation, as soon as someone is born, they'd have to rush to that person and say, we've got to renew the covenant. There's someone new in the covenant. Of course not. They are viewed as being a part of the covenant by way of the descending obligation that we all use every single day. It's a part of our reformed convictions. It's a part of the way we live as a nation all of the time. And so the fact that there is a descending obligation to posterity in national covenants is completely consistent with the word of God and with the world in which we live. Just in closing then, dear ones, as we think about how many covenants we are ourselves involved in, how many covenants we have engaged ourselves in, And some of these covenants, granted, do not bind our posterity. For example, when I enter into a covenant with with, uh, my wife, there's no perpetual obligation, descending obligation to my children in the same way that I have entered into that covenant with my wife. That is certainly a unique covenant in which I bind myself to. But nevertheless, it is a covenant. I'm just trying to emphasize, how many covenants are we engaged in? Marital covenants, commercial covenants, baptismal covenants, ecclesiastical covenants, the solemn legal covenant, which we'll talk more about as we begin to make application of all of these moral principles that we're going to build upon from the scripture, we're going to then begin to make application to the Solemn League and Covenant in order to demonstrate that it fulfills all of the moral uh, uh, moral principles. And as we begin to apply it to ourselves as posterity, we will see that it likewise fulfills the various moral principles from God's word as it applies to us. But we live in a world, dear ones, where we could not function apart from covenant and contract. And if we become covenant breakers, if we begin to disregard covenants here and there and consider them to be unimportant or things that we can break 
simply because we don't like the circumstances we are in. We are, dear ones, above all people to be most pitied because we have the truth. We know the truth. God has opened our eyes by his grace to the glory of the covenant of grace to our baptismal covenants, to national covenants, to marital covenants. God help us to impress upon the hearts of our children the importance of covenants so that covenanting doesn't die with this generation regardless of what happens to this particular church. But that covenanting even national covenanting, continues to be embraced. That the sacred covenants of our forefathers are not cast upon the ground and trodden underfoot, but rather, though we be few and scattered as a remnant over the face of the world, that we will hold high the banner of our national covenant, the solemn Lincoln covenant. God help us. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we praise Thee and thank Thee that Thou, our God, has given to us the glory of the covenant of grace. For, Lord, we recognize how we have sinned and fallen in Adam in that first covenant and lost, Lord God, the original righteousness that was ours in Adam. We thank Thee that the Lord Jesus Christ has come in the covenant of grace to fulfill all righteousness and has perfectly done so. And that righteousness is imputed to us by faith alone. And Lord, we would show forth our grateful and thankful hearts by covenanting to Thee, O God, to be Thy people as individuals, as families, as a church, and as a nation. And in recognizing and honoring, O God, the faithful, sacred covenants of our forefathers. Even, Lord, in taking that solemn league and covenant on not only their behalf, but on our behalf as their posterity. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that Thou would Help us to realize it doesn't matter whether hundreds of years have passed since the covenant was made. Thou art a God who continues to live and will hold us to that covenant even as thou did hold Israel to the covenant made with the Gibeonites. We pray, Father, that thou would use, Lord, even this doctrine and this practice to prepare thy people, for what thou wilt accomplish in the glorious days of the millennium wherein the nations will covenant to be thine. And the knowledge of God will fill the world as the waters cover the sea. We pray, our Father, that we may be faithful, a people who are faithful to our covenants, that when we, we say yes, it means yes. When we say no, it means no. And when we covenant, we hold that covenant. We swear to our own hurt to uphold those covenants as thy word teaches in Psalm 15. We ask, Lord, that thou would hear our prayer and help us, our God, to be faithful as we trust in our Savior and his righteousness. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.